Hi, and welcome to Still Loading, a podcast dedicated to exploring leadership for the digital age. My name is Ilona Brannan, and I am your host for this exploration and adventure. I have been fascinated by us humans and how we develop and the interplay with technology for over 20 years now, and I am so excited to be here with you. Leadership is a huge topic, which is so important to be able to create a future world that we want to be part of. And if you are someone who leads an organization, team, project, or simply looking to develop yourself, then this is the podcast for you. So strap on in, get set, and let's disrupt the leadership space to create better leaders for all of us. Now that's definitely worth listening to. Hello everyone, welcome to this week's episode of the Still Loading Podcast. I'm really delighted to be joined by a new contact that I've made, but he really transformed the way that we were telling stories in the organization I was working with, our client site. And I loved working with him and I really had to get him to join me on the podcast to talk about all things leadership for the digital age from his perspective. So welcome, Stuart Bewley. Hello, Alona. Lovely to be here. Could you tell people a little bit more about what you do? I've heard the story a couple of times now, so I think I could be pretty good at it, but I think you're the best one. (laughs) I'll try and say something slightly different just for you alone. So I was an actor for many, many years. You can't really find me on YouTube, but if you look hard enough, you might be able to see me. But in those years, about 10 years ago, my friend Mia said to me, Stuart, I get so nervous when I speak in public can you help me? And I said, oh, I don't really know if I can. I'm not a trained coach. And I said, you know what, I'll have a go. So I taught her how to stand tall and breathe and project her voice. And in 20 minutes, she went from so shy to so confident that I was so shocked. And she said to me, look, I think you've got a business. What you do really does help people to change. And that was about 10 years ago. I knew nothing about the business world. I genuinely thought B2B was a TV channel and I couldn't find it. I thought it was next to QVC, not that many, you know, QVC. So, and then I started coaching people. I was like, I'm, okay, I'm going to have a go. And I met a startup and he was talking about B2B to C. And I was like, what's a B2B to I don't understand any of this. Anyway, what I realized pretty much straight away was that people don't know how to tell stories. And if I could coach them to get rid of their jargon and to stand tall and present well, it would also change their content. And it would make them much more easy to believe and much more, well, much more possible for them to win funding for their businesses or sales, you know, if they're in sales. Yeah. That was 10 years ago. It's now 10 years on. I've helped startups raise $4 billion for what they do. And I've got to work with Google and Microsoft and I've met you along the way. So that in a nutshell is what I do. I help people go from not very good storytellers to brilliant storytellers by giving them the tools they need. So I kind of do myself out of a job. But I mean, that's what you want. You want to equip everyone that you work with, with the capabilities to improve, and then they can come back to you for more improvement. Well, and and they do, and that's wonderful. (laughs) That's the trick. And I love the fact that I was put into the same bracket as Google and Microsoft. I wonder if my branding one day will be that big. (laughs) I have no doubt. No doubt, no doubt. I wanted to talk a little bit about the storytelling components of the work that you do, because... I was interested in working with you because I do think that storytelling, especially in a remote world, mm. remote first world and an increasingly digital first world, storytelling is even more, has to be even more compelling. You can't just use your charisma in the room. No. Um, and so the story itself has to be really impactful. What sort of things have you seen with the clients you've worked with, especially 
since the pandemic? What, what impact has that had? Well, you just said something about you can't use your charisma in the room, which I think is really insightful. The room is now the screen. Hmm. And therefore, people have to, well, when COVID-19 started, I think people didn't realise that the room was the screen. I think people were just going, oh my gosh, how, how do I do work? How, how do we even function? And then about six months in, people started to go, oh, this thing, this screen, this, this is like this place where I have to present. And then they're like, then they're so exhausted by that point that they don't really know how to bring themselves to the screen. And right at the beginning of COVID, there was an article in The Guardian that talked about, it's almost like a joke, like a man turns up at a bar and meets his professor, his enemy, his girlfriend and his mother all at once. Now, that's not true. No one does that. But in the Zoom world, everyone was turning up at the same place at different times, meeting a whole load of different people. So Christmas is on Zoom. Your line managements are on Zoom. And what that means is that nobody's got the ninja emotional ability to be able to go, this is the person I'm speaking to now. So everybody just gets exhausted. So what I noticed straight away in COVID-19 was that people just didn't even think it was a skill. Mm. And, you know, people talk about hard skills and soft skills. I think the founder of Y Combinator said it's not a soft skill, it's an essential skill. I think what COVID-19 has shown me is that The room is now your stage, your space, right? Your screen. So how do you show up there? How do you sit? How do you lean in? What what do you wear? What's your background? How do you deliberately, when everyone else's camera is off, how do you actually keep your camera on and bring your joy to the screen? These things that you would think are, are, are quite simplistic, for me, they're the difference between connection and disconnection. And Stanford say that a story is 22 times more memorable than a fact. And I know, we all know the best way to connect is through stories. And what I've noticed in in COVID is that people already didn't like telling stories. They were relying on their charisma in the room, whether it was good or bad. So suddenly you're left with people who feel exhausted, people who hate telling stories. And there's a reason for that that we'll get to. And everyone's just shying away from each other and then turning their cameras off. So for me, it's a, it's a dream as a coach because I'm like, now I can really give my skill. But for the people who were coming to me, it was the difference between genuinely feeling like they could do a good job and probably therefore an amount of their mental health because everything was blurred. I don't know if that answers the question. It's just what I was observing. I think that's really interesting. I, I also think that what you mentioned about that ninja capacity, you know, we don't have the buffer room, right? So like not this particular day, but some days I'm so scheduled and regardless of whether you put an extra five minutes to like go between, you don't. So you literally flick between two scenarios in yeah. about 10 seconds and your brain has to then delve into the, you know, where, where it needs to prepare for the meeting in about five seconds, get to grips with what's happening in the room. Whereas if it was physically going to another room yeah. or another office or you had a new meeting, you always had a turnaround time, like when you're facilitating or when you're running a meeting. And now it's that absolute agility that you need to be able to to process. Like I was talking to a colleague this morning about emotions. And my thinking at the moment is that people need to develop their emotional literacy to a very, very high standard now. Mm. Being is because we're now working in a much more remote first world. So it's more cognitive. It's not physical. It's not physiological. It's all up here. Most of our work now happens in our heads. It's not physical. So it means that 
if we're not careful with the emotional triggers that we might experience. So say something goes wrong at work and the boss isn't happy about it. He shouts or she shouts. And then that triggers you because you're like, whoa, they're, they're angry, et cetera. You'll take that into the next meeting because you had no capacity to decompress that moment. Yeah. And that triggers through the rest of your day. It does. And then you've got eight hours of it and it's exhausting. There's this thing called statio. It's a Latin word. And it's about being able to be, I think, stationary and still. And this guy was talking about the importance of statio between each meetings. And this book was written, by the way, before COVID-19. Yeah. He said, we all rush from meeting to meeting and we don't have a chance to go from one moment to the next. So my lens in business and in life, probably because of business, is the story lens. Mm. And I know that if you're not present in the space or in the meeting, because you've had a thousand thoughts coming at you, because you've just had a shocker, of an announcement and then you're in the next meeting and you can't walk you can't even get on a train or go wherever that means because you're not present you're not connected to the space which means that you're not really there we've all been there in conversations where the person is not there it's like they're phoning in the connection and nobody wants to be in a conversation with someone like that and that doesn't mean that person's disconnected it doesn't mean they don't care it doesn't mean that they haven't even got something brilliant to bring but the presence they're bringing the lack of them being fully present and the lack of them telling stories means that they might as well not be there. So you don't want to be there. So deals don't get done. Things don't happen because people are exhausted. And uh, what's the, I suppose when you were talking, I was thinking, what's the answer? For me, I'm very deliberate with my statio. Even like if it's 30 seconds, I'll mm. take a breath in and I'll go, that was that, here is this. Because otherwise I am rubbish as a coach. Yeah. I think one, I'm definitely factoring time, even if it is, as you say, 30 seconds, just doing some breath, you know, breathing. Mm. But the other thing I'm doing is I'm doing emotional literacy. So I'm developing my own emotional literacy to the next level. How are you doing that? So, you know, the emotional wheel. Have you ever seen the emotional wheel? Let's pretend I haven't. Okay. If you haven't seen the emotional wheel, ladies and gents and dog. (laughs) (laughs) And dog, he's doing very well, by the way. Doing my slipper, don't tell her. It's a wheel devised by, I think, psychologists or something, but it's to help you identify the full spectrum of human emotion. So in the center of the wheel is the sort of core six. So like love, anger, happiness, despair, like this sort of thing. Fear, I think, is definitely one of them. Then it goes to secondary, so that it's a bit more descriptive about what you're feeling. So it could be joy or disgust or disappointment. And then there's a tertiary one as well. So there's sort of three layers. And they all lead from the original sort of six. So to, to develop your emotional literacy to the next level is to take the core emotion. So say like I'm feeling, what am I feeling right now? Let's have a think. I'm feeling connected, right? So that would probably go in the love or joy or you know happiness column because I'm talking to you and we're having a great conversation and I enjoy your company, right? So it's to really identify what is it you're feeling and then why, and then also it helps you to remain present. If you're thinking, what am I feeling right now? You have to be present. There's no other way of doing this. Yes, great. Yeah, I agree. So just by thinking about that, it forces you to be present. Mm. Because the more emotional literacy you have, because I was like studying this at the weekend because I'm a nerd. (laughs) (laughs) If you have more emotional literacy, you have greater intuition. So how do you get people to do that? (laughs) <laughs> I don't know I'm just doing it myself I'm emotionally illiterate like I'm just thinking of all the startups and corporates that I coach it takes quite an ability to do that 
I think it is the only way of, of no, sorry, succeeding, not surviving, of succeeding in this new digital world is having yeah. that level of emotional yeah. literacy. That's exactly what I've come to the conclusion with. We're all in a more remote space, not yeah. physically connected to each other. So emotionally, we have to be more highly developed. Wow. But yeah, we're all good at hiding. Like the one thing that I've noticed in my coaching is I do this exercise where I get people to share their story. You've probably seen it. Yeah. The hero's journey i share my story first just to be all out there vulnerable vulnerability by the way for me so you've heard me say this loads of learner is the ability to reveal something about yourself that opens up the conversation so someone else can join in and it is exposing and it is raw and it's very unsafe for someone who's like barriers up i don't want to share anything the hero's journey i'm deliberately vulnerable i deliberately open up about some really tough times in my life and then people write their own story and then share it with people that they've worked with for three months or, or sometimes 20 years, even now in this digital age. And honestly, there was someone, I think he'd worked with them for 15 years, it's a couple of years ago, and he said, I've worked with you and I've never heard that story. So I'm there thinking like the corporate world, I love the corporate world because it, we do know that business makes the world go round. So if business can do business for good, it's really, really powerful, right? But yet in the corporate world, there are all these unwritten rules, which basically are, don't be emotional, don't be personal, just get the job done. Now, no one says that, but it, well, maybe Jeff Bezos said that on Amazon, but no one else said that. People are not encouraged to be vulnerable or real, which means, therefore, there's no reflection. So to be emotionally literate in a corporate world we have not taught that. We, as in the world, has not taught that. But yet it is the most needed skill. I would like to say the whole world on a storytelling workshop because that's how you become emotionally literate is that you, you get connected to your story and then if that's with a team of people that are safe-ish, then you can continue that conversation after the coaching, which is, hey, thank you for that. Like, it's a tough call. And I suppose people didn't sign up to go to work to have to be emotionally literate, but that, that's the world we're in now, isn't it? Hmm. I remember this from when I was teaching, but like the students who were potentially more emotionally literate than the others were the ones who were succeeding the furthest because mm. you can get stuck. So they, they, yeah. So it's just, it's fascinating. And I think story can really be powerful to help transform an experience as well. So there's a guy who studies trauma. I think his name's Bessel van der Kolk. And he, what he, name? I know, isn't it? And he wrote the, the Body Keeps Score. Oh, yes, yes, I've heard yeah, that. Quite a famous book. But he was talking on a podcast and I heard him say this. With anyone suffering from PTSD, because they did this study of interviewing people every 10 years after World War II, those who had experienced PTSD told the same story each time. It was like they were there, whereas oh. the people who didn't, the story changed and evolved every single time so that it could become something that was an empowering Ooh. story for them, right? Like... Oh, stop, stop the phone, that's gold. <laughs> that's gold. It also encourages me that I don't live in trauma because my story does change and evolve. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, that's, that's really interesting. So they're trapped mm, in, in PTSD. They're, they're mm. trapped in their story. So there's something about PTSD that traps you. You can't move forward but yet if you're not trapped wow and a story that reveals that right that is so interesting gosh that's so insightful i was learning about something along the same lines about triggers again people caught in ptsd and this woman helps them 
get out of PTSD. And the way she does it is you go back into the memory and it's not that you remember something different, but you put on a different emotion. So for instance, if like someone hears a, like a car backfiring and they've been in the Afghanistan war or something, they will of course be taken right back to the zone, to the military zone. And I mean, this was deep work she did with them, but she would get them to remember a completely, to feel a different emotion to put inside the memory because what happens is when you have a memory I'm sure you know this the the emotion attached to it is like a physical protein in the brain so every time you go back to the memory another emotion so you build up these physical proteins and that's why the triggers are so strong I found I found that fascinating that some stories that have been really painful for people it's not that you rewrite history but that you bring in a different set of emotions deliberately to train your brain but again, that is training where everything is training, everything we're talking about. It's not turning up on screen and just getting through the day because I think we've all recognised we can't really do that, right? Absolutely. That sort of practice, you know, really taking that time to practice, I think is essential for people going forward, especially with the world of work as it is and will continue to be so, right? I can imagine in the future, to give it 10 years, there won't be offices. There might be hubs that you go to yeah. and you're like connect with people but there might not be offices or there might be offices but you only go once a month or twice a month anyway i was chatting to a university lecturer yesterday he's a parent of a friend of my son so they're in the same class i described that really badly (laughs) and he said that before covid he used to go in every day and now he goes in once a month yeah like i don't think we have really understood the impact of covid i don't think we're going to sign it for at least two to three years like No, I don't think we're going to for a long, long time. And there's also a sense of shared trauma from the lack of contact with people for two years. Yeah. I mean, honestly, we got a dog a few weeks ago, mainly for our children to help them just process life. Oh, stop. It's you. (laughs) (laughs) But you know what? He is fond of me because he hangs around with me a lot. And there is something amazing about the physical contact and the love of an animal every day that I've never had a pet in my life before. It is very calming. And I know not everyone can afford that. You know, I know I'm very grateful for it, but it's, it's so interesting. So Chris, this is a really fascinating conversation. Thank what you. do you what do you see the role? Sorry, you, you're meant to be interviewing me. Yeah, no. <laughs> what do you see the role of story as? Like you've seen me do like stuff I did with the company we're working with. I think without a shadow of a doubt, you have to have much more refined and skillful storytelling skills in this new world to be able to communicate with impact, to communicate your vulnerability as well, so you can connect, especially in a remote context, because all you've got is your story. It is the only your words to connect with someone. You, you've reduced your nonverbal communication by 70%. Yeah. Even though you're on a video, it's still 70% less because you don't have the pheromones, the nuances of the eye movement and everything. Yeah. So the story becomes really vital to be able to delight, engage, connect, inspire, et cetera. So people need to have higher level skills, especially within leadership, which is obviously my jam. That's so, so before, well, I say it anyway, but it's a guy called Albert Moravian, and he did a study, and we probably all know it, but when you're communicating most passionately about something, 55% of what people read from that communication is body language. 38% is tonality and 7% is, is just the words. But when you said all you have is your words, I thought, gosh, that's, that's really interesting because actually it, it's true, isn't it? All we have are the words that we use because they 
they speak much more powerfully than the best body language that we could give on screen. Now, don't get me wrong, like body language on screen is crucial. It's fundamentally crucial, as is tone of voice. But that means you have to be really aware of your tone of voice because that's how you communicate your words. I know, you know, you can't sit back and, well, you can sit back and smile, but that moment, those pauses, those human interaction moments, they're all gone, aren't they? I wonder as well if, if the skill of oratory needs to almost come back a little bit, right? To, yeah. like, say, like, to kind of bring that gravitas to when you're speaking. I'm not saying for every meeting, but... Yeah, that'd be hilarious, like a Barack Obama speech every meeting. <laughs> okay, yeah, and the rule of three and all that jazz. But, you know, it's, I just think it's interesting because communication needs to up-level, and I don't see communication up-leveling. That's getting worse. <laughs> yeah, I see it getting more frequent. And yeah. there's more of it, but I don't think it's at a higher level. There's a higher volume. That's a different thing. Oh, Alona, I'm making notes. Not high level, it's higher volume. I listened to a guy called Pat Lencioni the other day, and he wrote The Five Dysfunctions of a Team, which is brilliant, and I highly recommend it. He's done this thing called The Genius. Anyway, it's well worth looking at about the, how we work. But he, he said that they made a move recently to make their meetings 20 minutes long from an hour he got a load of resistance initially from these people and these are forward-thinking innovative people they were they were resisting a 20-minute meeting they thought we can't possibly get anything done in 20 minutes and the comment that his co-founder made was all the stuff that we used to bring to the physical meetings you know the faffing the distraction the the chat that actually is even worse in the digital world because of the emails and the things that we can do and the messages that we can send so by reducing something to 20 minutes and by going Here's the headline. Here's the beginning. Any thoughts? We're going to have an outcome. It's created such a sense of energy, which has probably taken the communication to a higher level, not a higher volume. Mm. Really insightful. But I was shocked that he got pushed back on 20 minutes. I'm like, if all my meetings could be 15 minutes, I would be delighted. But it makes me think that in this world, people still think that you need an hour to get stuff done. Well, yeah, I mean, that's a traditional unit of time, isn't it? If we completely redesign time to be in segments of 20 in some crazy like French model, <laughs> you know, yeah. like 20 rounds, whatever it is, then we would do that. That would be our units of time. But yeah. we, we have it in hours and 60 minutes and stuff. But let's talk more about you because I know we, we could wax lyrical all day, every day. But I'd love to know a little bit about a leader or something <laughs> that's inspired you. Yeah. So... We were talking before and I was saying it's really hard to find a leader that has inspired me. And it's not that I'm not inspired by people. And then you said, what about somebody with, with attributes? So I think growing up, I was very much the non-alpha male and still am the non-alpha male. So I write poems. I play the violin. I can't play rugby or football. I really can't play football. I've got a great left foot, but apparently that's helpful. But I'm rubbish. What that means is that when I looked to men and male role models growing up there was kind of no one and I just felt a bit wrong <laughs> that I wasn't really a man and that matters to me because I'm a man and I'm a dad and all of that and I say all of this because this person he started a charity which is all about raising up young leaders to lead really really well so that they can then grow up as they grow up, become leaders in every sphere of society, wherever they go. And he came from a church background, so it was kind of based around youth work, local youth work. This guy was so committed to young people actually figuring out who they were. 
he had a conversation with my wife, who's also a youth worker, who also felt like there weren't many role models for her. And he was like, hey, do you want to come along to our conference and just like kind of see what we do? And I was an actor at the time. And, and he said, do you want to talk about what it's like to be an actor in the family? You can only do it in seven minutes. You can do a seven minute talk. And I was like, who is this guy? He's already making it exciting. Only a seven minute talk. Anyway, we went to this conference, 150, 200 young people. And the whole thing is all about helping young people feel great. The atmosphere is brilliant. These are awkward teenagers who should, you know, naturally you'd be awkward and hiding and in cliques, but everyone is chatting. Anyway, his name's Pete and he founded this charity called One Life. And Liz ended up working for him as training coordinator because she was so inspired by him. She then ended up taking over running the charity four or five years ago as he moved on to another job. And I've known Pete for like five, seven years. And I can say in every single interaction I have with him, he is nothing but totally genuine. So when he's in front of 200 young people, he is totally committed to their growth. When he is listening to a challenge that Liz has brought to him where she's gone, Pete, actually, I really struggle with this. He listens so well. He doesn't defend and he says, sorry, he reflects and he, and then because he's also a coach, he's like a leadership coach as well. He has brilliant questions that I'm like, how do you come up with those questions about life or, or, the, or reflections? So he was talking about how he's now coaching for 15 minutes. He's coaching people in the 15 minute coaching sections because we haven't got time, but you can do loads in 15 minutes. It's not so much what Pete says, it's what he brings to every part of his life that inspires me and it's those attributes that actually make me feel more accepted as a man because he does love football and he's actually he's actually coaching some people that are at national rugby level and he knows that I know nothing about rugby and he's like Stu if you weren't a rugby he even sent me a video of the guy who was coaching and I sent the message back going that guy is fast but I loved the fact that I didn't feel in any way a lesser of a person for mm. not to rugby football because I've seen him in, in every area of life because he shared his life with me, he's got, as all of us have been through, some tough stuff. And yet that seems to make him stronger. So he is somebody that inspires me because his attributes are vulnerability, honesty. He's totally himself, whether he's with teenagers or 50-year-old millionaires. And that means that actually doors open for him and that he can have those difficult conversations with people that nobody else would have because he doesn't bow to pressure. He also said, then I will end my reason why I like him. The other day when he was being interviewed, him and Liz were being interviewed about handing over and how do you hand over well, you know, from running a charity to not running a charity. He's now on the board of, he's the head of trustees. He said every day he has to battle with ego. That's his battle. So he knows that he could, you know, think he's great. And I'm there going, even the fact that he says that encourages me because we've all got daily battles. People rarely don't talk about it. And when someone does talk about it, it's encouraging to me. So that is a leader who inspires me. That's, he sounds like a dream. <laughs> <laughs> he is. And he's, not, he's not perfect. No, but... no, no. But I think, it's the, I think it's when somebody's really amazing qualities are greater than the bits that make them human. You're just like, wow. You know what I mean? There's a bigger chunk that's like, wow. But you also accept he's human. So it gives you that sort of, this is potential as well for me to grow into it's not completely unfeasible because perfect people even perfect stories or characters in stories don't you just don't connect with them because as a person you are in of course fallible (laughs) well it's about being impressed or inspired right 
2019, we, we got into a friendship with a couple of people and for various reasons, I became impressed with that person rather than inspired by that person. And that, and that was a very different uh, friendship to the friendship that I'm in with Pete. Because when you're impressed by somebody, and, and that was all me, by the way, I was, you know, I get, I, I was wowed and, you know, that's not that person's fault. That's on me. When you're impressed by somebody to the point where you think, oh my gosh, they're incredible. You can't really connect with them. You don't bring yourself to them. You retreat back and you don't even know you're doing it until you're out of it and go, why was I a bit weird then? When you're inspired by somebody, they actually, you know, you are called up to do stuff you've never done before. and that was definitely a really important lesson for me. And in life generally, I must be inspired, but not impressed. So if I meet a billionaire, I've got to not be like so amazed by that person that I go, I go, blah, 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 which I do. You know, there are a couple of people that I have verbal diarrhea with. <laughs> I go, blah, 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 I'm trying to move beyond that. So yeah, I think that's right. You, the person has got to be relatable. Otherwise, they're not real, are they? And I love that as a framework, right? So you have to ask yourself, am I inspired or am I impressed by this person and try and shift yourself? Because I agree with you. It's realizing that what they've done or achieved is possible, but also you can be motivated by that rather than like, whoa, that's way too beyond what I can do. I'd love for you to share a little bit about the work that you're doing at the moment. What's sort of driving you in your business? Like what are the new things you're working on? Oh, well, that is a great question. At the moment, I'm working with Google, which is just really exciting. That's because a, a friend that I've been working with has, has been with Google for a while. And, and I guess, like he said to me, at Google, we're great at software and products, but we're not great at storytelling. Mm. And what we need to do is facilitate spaces, digital spaces with, with startups in particular, where they can come in the room and feel really welcome and that they can get some really good stuff. And he went, Stu, can you help me? help our Googlers, as they're called, <laughs> to do that. So I'm running this monthly club for a year and doing training where I'm basically training people to own the space, to start meetings really well, to use story at exactly the right time to, to get other people to open up. I guess you call that train the trainer, right? But it's really exciting because what, what my friend Gibran said to me was, these Googlers, they're so keen to learn. And I love it when you get on a call with a bunch of people that are so hungry. You know, some of these are from like engineering backgrounds or techie backgrounds, and I'm, and I'm asking them to open up and tell me their story. I think what I've learned with storytelling is that you have to go really deep into one aspect of training to then recognize they might only use 30 seconds of that story in a meeting, but those 30 seconds could be really powerful. So what I guess I'm doing with Google, what at the moment I think is crucial, what I'd love to do with all my clients is let's nail the opener. How do you create such an incredible culture and atmosphere from the way you open the meeting, from how you greet people to what you put in the chat, to the first story that you tell, to how you name the person to get their cameras off, to how you do all of that? I wasn't doing that at the start of COVID. That seems to be the work that I'm moving into now, which feels very nitty gritty, but actually it's what I would call holistic storytelling. That, so that's one of the things that I'm doing at the moment. And it's fun. It's really fun. And even when I've coached people and they come back to the club the third time, and go, right, pitch me your opener. And they always start with lots and lots of jargon. They bury the lead is what they call it in journalism. And then they make the most exciting announcement on line five. But by line five, you've lost me because, you know, I've, I've got an eight second attention span. So I actually quite enjoy it 
as this sounds awful, when people come back in the room and I know they're good and I know they've done well and they repeat the same mistake, I enjoy it because I'm there going, we're having to really undo some deeply embedded bad habits here. Hmm. How long does it take to break a bad storytelling habit then? Well, I'll come back in a year and I'll tell you. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think generally, if there is a deadline, you can break any habit. So with Google at the moment, it's the general skill of being able to be story to be great storytellers, which means there isn't a specific deadline because there's lots of presentations all the time. But when you've got a pitch that has to be delivered, that you know it has to land, that's when you can, I mean, almost break any bad habit. So I have worked with Japanese people who find it really hard to say ver and work differently. I've worked with different nationalities as well, where like they literally can't say ver or sir. And I know that if they're speaking to an English audience, the English audience do slightly think they're still in the world and they're quite arrogant and will ever so slightly judge a non-English native speaker for being not very good at their grammar. So I work really hard at getting people to do that. Now, if you were to go to a speech therapist and to try to deal with that, that might take a few months. But when the pressure is on, it is incredible what the human being can achieve. Mm. So I don't know if that answers the question, but it's, I'm really glad that I don't know what my clients are thinking when they're being coached by me, because I push them really hard because I want them to get to brilliant storytelling, which means they have to overcome their gremlins that are going, you're rubbish, what are you doing? Shut up, slow down. They have to overcome any accent stuff. And I'm in the room going, I know we will get there in this hour. I also know Daniel Kahneman says that the brain is like four times less likely to want to change than to change. So to make people change is really hard. I know all these things, but I'm like, we're in the room, we are going to do this. <laughs> well, I suppose that's um, recognising your own leadership. When you're in that room with those clients, you have to be the leader in the room to take them where they need to get to. Yeah. But that's an interesting role, right, that you have. You're not their day-to-day leader. You're like a guest leader. <laughs> yeah, 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 a parachuted-in leader. Yeah, yeah, it's so interesting. I wonder if in the Roman Empire they had guest leaders, right? They had like Caesar most of the time. And then and had... someone comes in to dramatically change someone. I, I do know that because I'm external to a company, that I'm able to come in. So if I can build trust, and I think this is one of the things that leaders need to do, if I can build trust very, very quickly, and if I can show that I'm good at what I do, then I can I can do a lot with people in that moment because they've let their guard down and they want to achieve a specific skill, which is storytelling. What nobody knows, unless they're now listening to this podcast, is that the skill of storytelling is actually the skill of being fully human, fully present and kind and listening. So it brings up all of that stuff as well, but nobody knows that. And I remember when I started building my website, I was like, how do I put on my website? These are all the things that you get. Great team training. You'll build your team quicker than you could do in five years. You'd you'll have your tagline better than the 250 grand you spent on the ad agency but all of that sounds really arrogant and really hard to quantify but in in the moment the way I lead the room enables transformation what I'm always interested in is what happens after and I'm not just talking about storytelling how does that culture that was for that moment generated beautifully how is that sustained sometimes it isn't sustained we all know that sometimes it is Hmm. I guess it's the commitment of whoever's bringing you in, right, to really start to embed the practices. It's not just one and done. It has to be a mindset shift. I think it was so interesting what you said about the brain is four times more likely to want to stay the same than to change. Yeah. 
And again, I know these things, I read the, the books and everything, but when you think of it like that, you're like, oh, no wonder it's so hard for me to change. And you would almost be a bit more compassionate with yourself for maybe not transforming overnight in some sort of montage, 80s montage thing. It's like, no, no, And here it is. Yeah. I think it's quite hard to be compassionate to oneself. I think it's really hard. I don't know why, but I think it, it is hard to do it. I know when I see it in the people I coach, I see them getting frustrated. My job is to give them the next step so they can see they can achieve it. And then when they're getting lazy, I have to push them harder. It's like a constant dance. Um, I can't push them too hard because they will actually crack. In fact, Daniel Kahneman says, not that I've read him loads, but I was talking about him today. Brain's got two systems. System one says two plus two equals four. We've learned it, it's intuitive. There's a tiger in the room, get out. System two goes, okay, a system one has accepted something. I'm going to do something. I'm following you. Uh, it's now going to learn. And system two runs at pace like a slow jog or a steam train. But if you overload your system two, if you give it too much too soon, pupils dilate, your brain shuts down. So I'm aware that when I'm coaching people, I can't go in and throw everything at them. I have to take them step by step by step. And then by the end of the hour, I would say to them, what are you taking from this? Mm. And the learnings that they come out with and I, I mean, they are profound. Like, I couldn't make them up if I tried. That you know, I have to be more present. I have to be more this. It's beautiful. And you must learn a lot from your clients too, from just doing those things with them. Yeah, I do. I've got a notepad full of notes. My friend said to me once, "When you say so, I get coached by somebody. Mm-hmm. I've, I've only started this since COVID." And she said to me, "When you said that you've helped twelve thousand people." get coached she goes why did you say that and I was like oh why did I say that and I said I kind of felt like I needed to be validated she said no I understand that but what if you were I said but I also really love learning off people so she said what if you were to always frame it as I have, I've had the privilege of coaching 12,000 people which means I've seen a lot and I've learned a lot yeah and I thought that's true actually the truth is that I'm my friend Richard who kind of does the same thing that I do but very very differently so that sounds like a contradiction in terms but he said to me when he started working for kpmg i think it was kpmg person said we will hire you as long as you are always willing to learn i thought that's really fascinating so i do yeah in 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 my brain it's now ingrained in me but when i started i was like i will choose to learn from my clients because the danger is when you think you know something you think there's nothing that anyone can teach you and we're always learning that's why this podcast is called still loading aha because we're always still loading there's always more to sort of upgrade the operating system and and whatnot and that was my thought process because I think I think leadership as a concept too is is shifting and changing and altering so I think leadership as a concept changes over time so the leader that we needed in a certain environment was you know say in the war the leader that comes to mind is Churchill but that's the leader for that time then when we got into peacetime we needed a different type of leader and I think it's true as well for the digital age and obviously with the increase of um, women in the workforce we've seen a different expectation and acceptance of different leadership styles I don't think it's 50 50 I still think there's an old model people still fall back to if you think about what we talked about with the change and, and sort of the big stories, right? So you're talking about people's stories. What about big 
massive yeah, yeah. cultural stories of like this is how this is done or this is how it's always been that's yeah. also changing over time like that's culture yeah it's like an oil tanker isn't it that takes time to change yeah it's changing one of the things that I thought was wonderful when we did the workshop together was when you told us to almost personalize that inner critic do you want to tell everyone a little bit about that exercise yes so Roald Dahl was a, was a pilot in the RAF and he was shot down and then he obviously became Roald Dahl the author and one of his books I think his first book maybe was Gremlins and in the RAF I discovered recently the, the way that they would describe the enemy sabotage the planes weirdly going wrong some invisible force they would call it Gremlins and I think when it comes to storytelling, we've all got gremlins. We've got these invisible forces. But uh, what I get people to do is to name them. It has to be the same sex as you, and it has to be the same initial because it makes it more playful. So my gremlin is Sebastian. And my gremlin always accuses me with very whispery thoughts. And he will say to me, you're just too much. Calm down. Everyone thinks you're over the top. Now, I know where my gremlin comes from. Uh, in my teenage years, I did not have a good relationship with my dad. So in fact, my gremlin, Sebastian, also is about 30 years older than me and is fat. My dad is no longer fat. We've had a great relationship. But that is Sebastian. And, and on my bad day, when adrenaline kicks in, because adrenaline will kick in when we present, it will kick in because the body feels it is being attacked. So it will try and protect you. When adrenaline kicks in, the gremlin goes, you're just about to speak, Stuart calm down just calm down now the problem with that is that i will then go well no i can't calm down so i then act out of my gremlin and i speak according to my gremlin so i'd love everyone listening to the podcast to do this even now whilst you're listening get a pen and paper out name your gremlin same sex same initial and then name at least one accusation it whispers to you now it might come as a sweet seductive whisper that if you could start to name those accusations you can then flip it on its head so for just calm down my flip my positive goal is i will always bring an incredible amount of energy like and that's really important to me it's really important to who i am just calm down totally shuts me down you're too much i would say i am what i need to be to get my clients to tell their stories. And that just frees me to play up. So that's what I do. I have discovered recently, one of my associate coaches did it with someone who was coaching live for the first time since COVID. Out of all the storytelling coaching we did, you know, they learned how to pitch a story brilliantly. That was the takeaway that was most powerful to them, was naming the gremlin. Yeah, I think it's liberating because it stops you like limiting yourself and you don't even realise you're doing it. No. And the thing is, Elena, you don't, we don't know we're doing it. Until that exercise, I genuinely think people don't know. Gremlins hide really well. They have to be named. Mm. And I've only started to do that in the past six months. And it is really powerful. Yeah. No, I loved it. I loved it. And thank you for sharing. Well, we are nearly at the end of time, which is crazy how quick that went. So I guess the final thing is the three top tips that you have that can really help leaders in the digital age flourish at this moment in time. Well, my top tips are entirely based on story, right? So this, I'm not saying that these I'm are... I'm not surprised. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not surprised. 
<laughs> so I'm not saying that these are the things that will make your leadership. I think the first thing, this sounds really simple, is enter the room every time with purpose. So when you're entering the room digitally, you have to think about your background. You have to think about your lighting, what you're wearing, even if it's not the greatest background or lighting. Like you have to know what it is and you have to enter with a smile and welcome and ask other people to enter the room. If you do that every single meeting, it will start to transform the meeting because you as a leader have authority and you can choose to lose that authority or use that authority by the way you enter the room. And if you practice that regularly, make it as important as the agenda you want to bring, it would transform the meetings. It would transform the meetings. And my friend again, Dubrow, was talking about in Google. He sometimes spends 10, 15 minutes chatting with Googlers about their life. He, he lets the chit chat happen until it comes to an end. He, he's using his authority. He's entering the room, right? And he says, then the next 40 minutes or 20 minutes are so productive because of it. So that is number one, enter the room. The second one is tell your story in two and a half minutes why you're in that role. Get your story, work out why you got to where you got there. People can follow me on LinkedIn or my book's out next year. Just follow me and find me because I give loads of stuff on this. How to tell your story in two and a half minutes. Not one minute, not five minutes, two and a half minutes. You have to practice your why in two and a half minutes. Now you can take it down to 30 seconds. You can take it up to five minutes, but two and a half minutes is to make sure that you don't give too little and you don't give too much. And then tell it to someone who is a safe audience member. And then that's your toolkit. So we've got enter, we've got tell your story. And by the way, no one likes telling their story initially, but it's always life-changing when they do it. And the third one is when you listen, play back what the person is saying in front of you. Playback is not commenting. You can comment after. It's not even encouraging. You can do that after. It's not even empathizing at the moment. You're just playing back. It's from Steve Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, Habit Five. Seek first to understand. So please, everyone, read and reread that chapter. He talks about unpeeling the onion of um, people because no one really knows what they want to say. The way you do it is you play it back. And if you can learn to play back, then you will stop interrupting in your head. You will stop waiting for the person to finish so you can respond. And it will mean you have much deeper connection. You don't really have a right to tell a story until you've learned to listen to that person's story. And the way you do it is by playback. So it's enter the room, tell your story, playback. Those three things could change your life. Fantastic. Thank you, Stuart. And please, when is the, what's the book coming out next year that we all need to know about? Uh, it's called, at the moment, it's called Speak Freely. It was written with this idea in mind. Could you start a book and end it? Could you start a book going, oh, I've got this presentation. I don't quite know how to do it. I get so nervous. And could you end it by going, yes, I've done it. I love it. I gave my first draft to somebody and they read it with lots of notes. And, and he said to me, Stu, it worked. I went to the pub. I told a story. My mate then told the story to his story. His mate then came to me and said, tell me the story. It worked. That's what the book's about. Awesome. I can't wait for that to come out. And I'll also put in the description box below links to Amplify Me, your company, where people can reach out and and connect with you and also your LinkedIn profile. Any final comment before we wrap up? I think the biggest challenge at the moment is being fully present. We diminish ourselves and our ability to feel that we've done a job well if we're not fully present. So everything I'm saying is all about that. 
And if everyone could just turn up, even if they're exhausted, even if they've not had statio, even if they've not got their story prepared, even if everything has fallen apart, if we could still turn up and just be fully present, it would make a difference in the meetings. And it's the smallest of changes that can make the biggest of differences. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Stu. It's been so great to chat and connect again. And uh, I hope to connect with you again soon. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Elaine. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you would like to help support this podcast, please share it with others. Share it with your friends, your family, your colleagues, anyone you think who might benefit from listening. Post about it on social media as well or leave a rating and review and please subscribe to catch all the latest updates and episodes. You can also find us on Instagram at Still Loading Podcast. Thanks and I'll see you next time. Bye. He trained my wife, who was also a youth worker. Sorry, my coffee machine is talking to us. I'm sorry that's happening with podcast. I'm just going to do this for a few seconds. All right, you're going to have to wait. <laughs> sorry, talk amongst yourselves whilst you're waiting to find out who this person is. There we go, it's gone. Um, this is, I'm very embarrassed that it's happened. Um, so anyway... <laughs>